The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, and 24-7 support. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code GUARDIAN to get 20% off during the month of September. Hello, this is Music Weekly. I'm Alexis Petridis. And I'm Kieran Yates. This week, it's our psychedelic special. I'll be talking to Ripley Johnson from San Francisco's Wooden Ships and Moon Duo. Bob Stanley, Paul Lester and Kieran Yates are here to reveal their psych favourites. And of course, we have an all-psychedelic singles club. All here on Music Weekly from The Guardian. I'm just going to point out that I went to see Robin Thicke last night. Um, and it was so awful that I'm in a state of disrepair today because I, I confess I took to strong drink after the show no. to try and sort of obliterate it from my memory. I went to see Brandy last night and she was amazing. Really? Yeah. Oh. Although it was the O2 and um, Fleetwood Mac were also playing, so it's a really strange crowd Confusing. kind of wandering around. Um, but yeah, no, she was great. Excellent. Well, we're not here to talk about Robin Thicke or indeed Brandy. We're mm-hmm. here to talk about psychedelia. And the reason we're here to talk about psychedelia is because uh, this weekend there is a uh, two-day psychedelic festival in Liverpool. Paul, you know all about this. Yeah, there's a two-day psychedelic festival taking place in Liverpool this weekend. I think because uh, the city has a history of, uh, of being to psychedelia. I think I spoke to the bloke behind it, Craig Pennington, the, the founder of the festival, and there, I think there's a, f- a well-known phrase in Liverpool, you're never more than 200 yards away from a copy of Love's Forever Changes. <laughs> uh, and they, and you know, I guess going back to the Beatles, remember them? Tomorrow Never Knows, arguably the first sight record, although Bob will surely tell me otherwise. Pretty good shout, I think. Yeah, do you think? Sunshine Superman by Donovan. Late 65. It's a hotly <clears throat> contended issue. Yeah, the, since, since Sunshine Superman was recorded at exactly the same time as uh, Eight Miles High by the Birds in America. It's a piece of weird serendipity. One of the reasons why I wanted to do a piece on psychedelia is I could actually kind of gen up on the subject. And so uh, I interviewed virtually every psychedelic musician on the planet, (laughs) past and present, the ones that are alive, apart from Pink Floyd. Um, Um, Did it seem like, it seems to me to be a slightly timely thing to be having a psychedelic Yeah, I think we said the last time I was here that there's a lot of it about. And they're they're really, I mean, so much so that there are festivals not just in Liverpool, but in Austin, which is the sort of the granddaddy of the festivals. And I think there are micro festivals in, in many other cities around the world. I do new band of the day, and a lot of the press releases for the new bands that I get sent contain include the word psych. I mean, all of them, you yeah. know, like funk bands, disco bands, trip-hop bands. They all have the, the suffer. The, it's a prefix, isn't it? The prefix psych. It led me to think, well, maybe I should do a piece. And, of course, there are, you know, fairly well-known bands purveying this, and Tame Impala and Toy and uh, Temple. That's just the T band, Temples. <laughs> uh, and, you know, if you delve a little bit deep, and it, it just kind of begged the question, is all music psychedelic? Because, you know, if it's doing its job right, you know, it should be mind-blowing, it should be mind-expanding. I can answer that question, because I went to see Robin Thicke last night. <laughs> <laughs> psychedelic in its awfulness? It was in no way psychedelic. Really? Uh, no, 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 no. No instrumental extrapolations? I mean, it did occur to me there were two types of psychedelia. There's the period fetish stuff which is tonight Matthew I'm going to be Sid Barrett in 1968 and then there's bands like Hookworms who just it's a synonym for instrumental extrapolation isn't it and, and sort of 20 minute freakouts and I think mm. you've seen them several I've times. seen Hookworms like they're, they're, they are a properly psych- in, in, in that they're a band that sort of delve into the dark heart of psychedelia it's not it's not Buttercup Sandwich Whimsy it's, it's pretty scary stuff what they do I, mean, I did interview one of the purveyors of Buttercup Whimsy I 
interview Pete the Daughtry of Kaleidoscope and uh, you know they they were they were well the, the creepily twee end of a British whimsy uh, that uh, and I, I interviewed Sonic Boom he didn't like that stuff very much although he has mastered a Kaleidoscope album he prefers more the the drone rocky stuff it was a subject that you know just could go on and on and on I talked about the now and the then of psychedelia the US versus the UK with Wayne Coyne who, who said he'd rather hang out with um, Grateful Dead but he'd rather make music like Pink Floyd I talked about drugs endlessly with Sonic Boom naturally and then the, I talked about the confluence of psychedelia with prog which is arguably what psych did next cosmish stroke kraut drone rock and all the psychedelic revivals no there was the paisley underground there was the tv personalities sort of there's a, that's that's a really interesting point that's my theory about i mean actually let's put it to bob bob why what is the sort of eternal appeal of psychedelia do you think well because there is so so many different strands of it i'm not exactly sure i mean i'm not i'm not interested in the drone stuff myself <laughs> Never, you're never strictly, you're strictly buttercup sandwich. Definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember going to see Displacement Three and being angry. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't like it. Sonic Boom's a lovely bloke, but that wasn't for me. Um, the British British sixties end of it. The appeal for me is uh, unusual instrumentation, experimental angles, phasing, mm-hmm. mellotrons, harpsichords, all that kind of stuff. That seems to have like you know, new generations of fans all the time. Same as Northern Soul does, or. A lot of those sort of like more intriguing end of sixties pop. And my theory about why it's happening now uh, it sort of keys into the fact there was a psychedelic revival in the early eighties in Britain with these people like television personalities, a club called the Groovy Cellar and Mood Six and all those mm. kind of bands. And I think that in hard times, in recession bit times, there are two options you can take. You can either kind of be the specials or the jam or whatever and confront it head on. Mm. Or you can, you know, to quote a television personality's lyric from a song about Margaret Thatcher, turn off your mind and float downstream, pretend it's all a very bad dream. Mm. Um, and I think that's sort of intriguing that there was that kind of early 80s site that exists, it's sort of grimier and darker than the, the 60s version, it exists under the kind of shadow of the bomb. You know, the imminent nuclear holocaust that was going to consume us in the early 80s. And I think there's a bit of that about now. I think that may be why people are sort of turning to it again. Yeah, they did. A couple of the people I interviewed did talk about that. Uh, I mean, uh, hookworms were interesting because they kind of conflate the two things. They they do, they do the bliss out thing while talking about council estates and drugs mm. and, and, and sort of uh, the nihilistic sort of form of drug. It's not escapist drugs, but, uh, you know, I'm, I hate myself and I want to die kind of drug taking. Mm. And, of course, um, Spaceman 3 tap into that dark side. And I, I like Flaming Lips because they sort of bring together the two aspects, the joyous, euphoric sort of form of psych, but also the uh, we're all going to die form of psych as well. Uh, I think that <laughs> makes them kind of inarguably ultimate psych. Kieran, you've been on a crash course, psychedelic crash course, taking LSD like it's going out of fashion, <laughs> polishing your No, it's DMT on. you want to take, apparently, according to uh, Pete Kember of Sonic. Who he w- who would know, yeah. in fact. He, is. he, he went into uh, uh, total detail about the effects, the glorious rush of, uh, well, within several minutes this happens, then in the eighth minute this takes over. Wow. And, yeah, it's all good He's stuff. Told. I felt like I was on a trip. I didn't even have to t- take the drug. <laughs> It was oh. by proxy pharmaceutical effect. <laughs> um, you've been, you've been. Sort of, uh, what do you make of it all? As, um, as someone from not, you know, sort of immersed in that kind of music. Not yeah. Music. Well, what I think is interesting is um, I'm obviously, you know, I feel like I'm completely outside of um, the world that you guys um, are talking about. But it's, the, but kind of the term is still very present in in hip hop and mm. in electronica. You know, you're not completely removed from hearing the term psychedelia. There's lots of kind of um, new rap artists and kind of. Um, hip-hop that used you know psychedelia in you know various terms so either that is some kind of cultural reappropriation or they're redefining the term for their own means either if that's kind of 
you know, unconventional time signatures or kind of beats or, you know, anything that might be rhythmically unconventional or what we're seeing quite a lot in, in sort of New York rap who use psychedelic, who kind of use the term psychedelic hip hop. They kind of, you know, speak explicitly about, you know, using hallucinogenics in order to, you know, have this kind of very technicolor approach to making music and kind of switching off from the mainstream and kind of going underground and feeling like they're still entitled to use that term, but kind of maybe maybe redefining it for their own means. Which is a good thing, because I think the problem that I always have with latter-day psychedelia is that I'm never interested in people remaking stuff from the past that I already know about. There seems to me to be absolutely no point in... You know, I've seen quite a lot of... For some reason, Brighton, <laughs> curiously, seems to be a sort of hotbed of, of, of these bands getting booked. There is continually kind of, you know, psych bands of one kind or another playing in Brighton from America and from Britain. And some of them I've seen, it's like, well, I don't really see the point of this because I could just go and listen to the first Pink Floyd album. I don't, You know what I mean? I don't see the point or purpose to it. And that's true of all sorts of music, that I, you know, from the past. What I like is people that are sort of pushing at the boundaries of what because there really aren't any boundaries to it that's what's sort of great particularly about British psychedelia I always get the sense that 90% of British 95% of British psychedelic records were made by people who never taken LSD mm-hmm. people never, but who just realised there's this thing happening we've got to be part of it or else we're going to be left you know we're going to be the, the tremolos or something we're going to be left behind well, it became sort of music with the brakes off you know it's like suddenly let your imaginations run, run riot well one of the things I was quite interested in what is the difference between dead jamming and Floyd jamming but you know they both get involved in these 20 minute extrapolations but they are essentially quite different I guess maybe they did come from blues and, 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 and there is more of a European avant-garde tradition but one of the ultimate paradoxes that I discovered doing this piece was that if, if you were truly making psychedelic music in 2013 you wouldn't be able to call it psychedelic because it would be something completely different. If you were making the, the equivalent quantum leap that the Beatles made for Tomorrow Never Knows you wouldn't recognise it in any way shape or form as anything that's ever existed Discuss. That's an interesting point. <laughs> it, is, it is an intriguing point. So maybe, you know, the last sort of true psychedelic band with My Bloody Valentine or something like that. Where I just that name did come up. Yeah, that, that, I think so. And that could, got some people's goats. I had to do a little capsule piece about the, the sort of the, the coming of psychedelia a few weeks ago in The Guardian. And I did mention My Bloody Valentine. And there was a lot of the commenters of the, you know, responded by saying, utter piffle, you know, the Valentines aren't psychedelic. Mm. But of course, if you, you know, use the sort of essential definition of the word that is mind-blowing music that explores uncharted territories, you know, it's Kevin Shields. We'll come back to this in a bit with the Psychedelic Singles Club. Moving on, but sort of not moving on. Wooden Ships' psychedelic journey began in San Francisco in 2006. They've since released three studio albums full of two-chord drones, throbbing bass, and the occasional backwards song. I started by asking Ripley Johnson, the frontman of both bands, to unravel the differences between Wooden Ships and his side project, Moon Duo. To me, the biggest difference is in the rhythms and the grooves, because we have a bass player in Wooden Ships. Mm-hmm. For Moon Duo, we use Sinai, plays a, a Moog bass for the bass lines so that immediately makes the rhythms much different mm-hmm. and it makes songwriting somewhat different there's some songs that Mundo could never play that are songs that i write for wooden ships mm-hmm. a lot of them actually because we don't have a bass player and that's actually one of the things that i focused on early on in wooden ships was was bass lines bass grooves so to me that's the big difference but beyond that i mean we i just write songs <laughs> and, and, uh, of, depending on what I'm working on, you know, what album we're working on. Sure, but I mean, you don't write something and go, oh, well, this is definitely a Wooden Ships song or this is definitely a, a Moon Duo kind of track. Only occasionally. I mean, yeah. I, I'm, we tour a lot and I'm, because there are two bands, I usually am just focused on one thing or the other.
talked about wanting Moon Duo to be like a dance band. Mm-hmm. Do you get that response? Like, I, I would have thought that a lot of times, like either of your bands, would attract people that sit on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, both bands, actually, the goal has been to be dance rock, um, in a sense. But what I've noticed is that people are very influenced by their environment when they go to a show. So if you're playing a show in a bar, they're there to drink beer and stand around and look cool. Mm. And so am I. You know, that's what you go to a bar and you just go to stand around um, and listen to music. Um, if you're in a dance club, you dance and you don't feel self-conscious because mm-hmm. you're in a dance club and you feel comfortable in that environment, even though they're not that different. Yeah. Um, so context is really important, which means that most of the time people don't dance that much because mm-hmm. we play a lot of rock clubs. But we're just about to play in Spain, Mundo, and people in Spain will dance, really? which is great. They're very enthusiastic. Is, is, do you find that? I mean, you find that there's a difference in, uh, you know, sort of environmental oh, sure. or, or response to what you do. That's that's intriguing. Well, you, you know, it's really obvious when you go, even in the States, you go to New York, people cross their arms <laughs> and stand, mostly, you know. Yeah. And L.A., like, people, you know, because you have people who are coming just to check it out or they... They just want to go out and be part of this of a scene or something like that, which is all great and fun. But um, but then if you go to some of the smaller towns where people are maybe a little less concerned with that, they're more likely to be make fools of themselves and jump around. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, first of all, do you mind the phrase, the, the, the adjective psychedelic being appended to the music that you make? I don't mind it. I, I mean, to me, I've thought about this a lot because everyone's talking about it now. To me, it's not, a, it's not a genre. It's more of a signifier. And psychedelic can be, can be any genre. And, and it's a personal thing. It can be psychedelic to you. It's something that transports you in mm. some way. I mean, if you're into the psychedelic sort of general thing, like psychedelic art, Mm-hmm. the history of psychedelia, then when some when someone says, oh, this is a really psychedelic album, you should check it out, then I would probably check it out. Because it seems to me that the kind of people you've talked about being influenced by absolutely don't fit into what people think of as, inverted commas, psychedelic music. I mean, you talked about sort of the, whether it's free jazz, the Velvet Underground, mm-hmm. Albert Isla, you know what I mean? These kind of people. Free jazz, yeah, that's its own thing. We probably yeah. shouldn't get into that. But um, stuff like, like Neil Young or the Velvet Underground, they have moments where it's... It is completely psychedelic to me, and I've had psychedelic experiences listening to this, and I find it very powerful. But they also have songs that are very straightforward, sort of rock or pop or folky kind of songs. You know, they're sort of all over the place in that sense. So yeah, you can't, you, it's really hard to pin down. I, I, I think it's a very personal thing. What appeals to you about sort of repetition in music? I mean, the, the, there's definitely a sense that that's kind of... A love of that is kind of underpinning whatever you do. Yeah, I love the the beat, you know, like, I, I don't want the beat to stop. And I realized this, um, I was in some bands when I was younger and I got fed up with the whole grind of it and I quit. And then I just started listening to music and I came to this epiphany at one point that I just wanted music that, where the beat just didn't stop. 
and it's from listening to you know minimal classical stuff Mm -hmm. from listening to the velvet underground some of their live stuff where they do sister ray for half an hour (laughs) drummers that don't play fills you know, they just play the beat, you know, more primitive, primal sorts of folk musics. Mm-hmm. There's just something that speaks to me. And I recognize that at that point in my life. And, and that's when I decided I'm just going to make this kind of music. There's, you know, find people who are willing to play a straight beat for mm-hmm. an entire song or play one bass line over and over again. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a trance thing. It's not like a new kind of idea. It's more of a, a very, very old idea. That's a really intriguing idea. That, that I mean, it must be quite hard, particularly for drummers. You know, because a drummer wants to kind of show off a little bit and show what they can do. And there's not many people who, when they set out drumming, go, yeah, I want to be Maureen Tucker. I want to stand there and go, boom, 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 for, for half an hour, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think musicians in general, there's a, there's a technique thing mm. you know, where people, they want to achieve a certain level of technical skill. Yeah. That's great, and it's, and it's, it's one aspect of music. But the other aspect is to play play what's appropriate for the music that you're trying to create. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So you know, having all of that skill is great if you're playing prog or you're playing Frank Zappa music, and a lot of people are really into that kind of thing, and that's mm. great. But so yeah, it is it is hard, and it's hard to unlearn these things that you learn, mm-hmm. especially in the states when you walk into a guitar store, you hear people playing really bad blues licks. And just like the most cliche stuff. And that's what you learn when you're starting out is you learn these cliches. And it's really hard to unlearn those cliches later, which is a process that, that I went through myself. The idea was, and it was sort of a conceptual thing that we we got rid of eventually, but that anyone can play music. And I do believe that. Mm. Even if it's just a woodblock or a tambourine. And, and anyone can tap into this sort of primal thing in music. And you see it in kids. They respond to a beat. And it's not usually not like a Rush song or a King Crimson <laughs> kind of thing, but just like a primal kind of beat. Yeah. Like they love electronic kind of music. They love craft work. Yeah. You know, like little kids love it. The simple melodies. Absolutely. And the repetitive beat. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was the initial idea was to have a, a really primitive rock band with people who would just play one thing because that's all they could play. Like mm-hmm. there weren't going to be... It would be one chord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, if you could learn this one chord, then you, then we can do this song <laughs> yeah, yeah. for half an hour. Like writing songs, how much of what you do in both media and is left to chance, is left to improvising, improvisation inside? Well, writing the songs, it's all very specific, and I'm sure. kind of anal when it comes to the recording and, and how everything should be, and because I have specific ideas about how it should sound. And I, but live, a lot of it's left to chance, and there's a lot of improvisation. But the lead stuff, when we record, I, I try to record the lead guitar stuff in a few takes and just sort of do it. There's not. It's not planned out. Um, I find that it's always better that way. Does and improvising uh, every night feel like a high wire act, or have you done it now so much that it's totally second nature and you know it's not going to dissolve into chaos? There's two ways to sort of do it. You can play it safe and just sort of play what you know will work. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I mean, I'm sure it's different for different musicians how they think about their instrument, but I know there's certain roads I can go down in a solo. Mm. It's a comfortable road. I know this road, and right. I can do that, and that's great. And it it's probably the best thing to do for the music. <laughs> but then there's another road where you're like, I don't know where this is going to go, but I just want to try this. Mm-hmm. Or I'm in a certain mood, 
and it's maybe I'm in a, a more aggressive mood or something like that, and I'm going to do something that I don't normally do, mm. and it could be terrible, but it's more interesting to me. Um, but I feel like I'm not, I don't feel like a very proficient guitarist. I'm sure. not a jazz player. Right. But I love jazz, and mm. I listen to it, and I'm always amazed, especially the really long stuff. You listen to, to these John Coltrane songs live, and he plays for 20 minutes. And apparently when he would take a break, he would go to the bathroom and still play in the bathroom because <laughs> he was so committed to, pre- to rehearsing. Like, mm. even when he was playing live, it was sort of, it, there was no offstage and onstage for him. I'm not that kind of proficient, you know. Ripley Johnson from Wooden Ships. Their most recent album is West on Thrill Jockey, mustered by Sonic Boom, no less. And now, time for Psychedelic Singles Club. Let's start with Paul's Choice. That's Paul's choice for our psychedelic singles club. That's antimatter people and only arc. Paul. Um, yeah, I, I I wanted to prove that there was actually so much psychedelia that well, I just put the word psychedelia into my search uh, button in, in my email, and uh, it, the first record that came up was a Kitsune compilation. Kitsune was a label, French label that normally specialises in uh, sort of dancey music, pop, uh, not necessarily synonymous with, with psychedelia. And lo and behold, track one was this: antimatter people, only arc. Uh, and it is one of those uh, strange offshoots of psychedelia, kind of psychedelic trip hop. It's um, it's a London five piece uh, fronted by this chap. I don't know anything really about him or them. Uh, just that his name is Jehan Jehan. He's been making music as antimatter people since two thousand and five, and this is his latest release. And I think it's uh, it's quite a nice record. Very nice, in fact, and uh, an, an example of uh, the psychedelicization that can take hold of uh, a, a different strand of music. Bob, do you like this? Um, yeah, I thought it sounded very nice. It's um, it sounds quite eighties, which is mm. uh, interesting. <laughs> Not the most psychedelic decade, I, I don't think. But um, well, apart from my bloody Valentine, of course, mm. um, and the television personalities. Yeah, and yeah, and the Paisley Underground. It's always there. You yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it was very, it was very pretty. I thought it was. It was yeah, I'd like to know more about this chap and what he's been doing since 2005. It's an interesting thing you said, psychedelic trip-hop, because a lot of trip-hop to start off with, before it became codified into this kind of coffee bar, mm. coffee bar, uh, coffee <laughs> table, coffee bar music, yeah. coffee, um, shop music. coffee shop music, thank mm. you very much, um, had a slightly more, you know, I'm thinking of sort of early releases by people like Kruder and Dorfmeister and Tranquility Bass and things like that. It had a, definitely had a, a sort of taking you to another realm kind of air. Psychedelia, I mean, it's just—it's definitely one of those genres. It's one of those clubs that people do want to belong to. I, I did notice that it's the only uh, genre that doesn't insult people by suggesting that they're part of it. You know, if you do a piece on Britpop, oh, I'm not 
ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Grunge. Well, we were grunge. Mm. Imagine about asking Eddie Vedder whether he was grunge. No. Yeah. Uh, but people love being part of like, the psychedelic thing, uh, you know, across all the generic frontiers. But Kieran, what did you make of uh, antimatter people? It has that uh, synth pop quality, which to me makes it feel like the, the airiness makes it actually quite accessible and it doesn't sound as obscure as some of the psychedelic records I've been listening to, Alexis. So. How, how obscure have you been listening to? <laughs> well, you gave me some um, tips to listen to. Did I? Yeah. No so, recollection of this at all. Yes, I've been in a bit of a psychedelic K-hole, actually. So this was quite <laughs> nice to listen to and come out of there, and, and it feels, yeah, that there's a real lightness that uh, like in this, whereas I was expecting it all to be kind of very like throbbing and like... Rah. Was there a harpsichord in there? Because of course that's one of the offshoots of psychedelia that we both like, isn't it, Alexis? Rock, rock, rock pop. Yeah, we love, we love. Bob is it Bob? Bob too. Oh, I'm Bob, sure. Of course. Of course. What am I talking Bob, about? Yeah, the man he invented it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I love I Michael Brown, uh, Left Bank, and all. And, mm. Yeah, you were there in '65. You were there as as the drug got invented. synthesized. Synthesized. That's the, that's the word. Yeah. Well, there we go. Antimatter people's only art. That's on off a Kitsune compilation. Kitsune compilation that's out imminently, actually. Imminently, fantastic. Well, we are uh, expanding the boundaries of Singles Club this week to include stuff that isn't just out this week. Um, this is my choice. From 1967, uh, my choice for Singles Club this week, that's uh, Tintin Abbey's Vacuum Cleaner, the B-side, I believe. Or is it the B-side? The A-side was called B-side. Yeah, the A-side was called B-side. Of uh, Tintin Abbey's solitary uh, single. There are three... I'm a huge fan of specifically British psychedelia, of of that era rather than American psychedelia. I find American psychedelia a bit sort of overbearing. There There are reasons why this happened. America had the shadow of the Vietnam draft, I think, hanging over it. American youth had. Mm. So when they took LSD, it all became, you know, up against the wall motherfucker and, and off the pigs and all this kind of thing. In Britain, it was just people took LSD. And I'm not saying people were radicalised, but people, you know, main the main thing was let's all dress up like Edwardians, you know, which is sort of, I think, intriguing. And There's a bit of nursery rhyme and, and music hall creeps in as well. Yeah, it? yeah, absolutely. Sort of childhood, you know, refracted mm. childhood. Well, yeah, we have ho- horrible nightmares of, of, of mummy bending over our crib. Yeah, it's that sort of thing. It's, it's um, you know, uh, what's the line from Matilda Mother by Pink Floyd? Doll's House Darkness. Mm. You know, I think it's a sort of a good good uh, thing. Music in a Doll's House, was that psychedelic or was that blue? Family. Yeah. Music in a Doll's House would have been relatively psychedelic if mm. the Beatles had called the White Album that, which they intended to before Family's album came out. Anyway, I'm mm. boring on. Tintin Abbey only made uh, one single. It's one of my favourite records ever made. Sampled by the Chemical Brothers as well. It just has everything uh, that I want out of a psychedelic record, this track. It's short, it's compact, it just feels sort of otherworldly and strange. It's produced in a really odd way in that the kind of the bass is sort of the lead instrument on it. And um, in addition to which, Tintin Abbey's gimmick every band in the day had to have a gimmick, was that the lead singer used to perform with, uh, was it an owl? I think so, yeah. He had a live owl on his shoulder (laughs) (laughs) while he performed. 
<laughs> they they made one single and then vanished into uh, obscurity. The single didn't sell at all and will set you back several thousand pounds if you can find an original copy today. My three favourite British psychedelic singles of all time. Obscure British psychedelic singles of all time. Vacuum Cleaner by Tintin Abbey, Path Through the Forest by The Factory, and uh, Michelangelo by The 23rd Turnoff, which you can now find on YouTube if you said it's a 23rd Turnoff from Liverpool, one of the few actually psychedelic bands from Liverpool. But there you go. Kieran. Yeah, this one was a weird one, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> I liked it. It had a, a sense of hardness, which I kind of expected. But it does. It also, to me, sounded very British, which I kind of I couldn't really place it and couldn't contextualize it in my head because I didn't have a lot of other things to compare it to. But then when I heard Bob's track, which we'll hear next, um, I, I kind of yeah, I feel like I feel more aligned to what's the time we just used Buttercup Whimsy. Buttercup Whimsy. Yeah, I mean, I think that I'm probably on that team more than this team because okay. this is a bit too much for me. But yeah, I thought it was good. I think it's good at what it does, isn't it? Bob. Yeah, yeah, I think it's an amazing record. I mean, it's what you were saying about it being concise is, it, I think, the main difference between British and American psychedelia, where most British psychedelia was uh, over three minutes over on a single. Mm. There are very few British psychedelic albums, good or bad. Yeah. There aren't very many. Uh, and in America, I think because album sales had picked up there before they picked up here, people were given album deals when they had like half a song yeah. and then had to like fill it up and you got 20-minute jams, <laughs> which aren't very interesting. Um, that, I think that, that really is a, a big difference. And also, of course, it's, it's much colder here than California, so people played a bit faster and harder, I think, generally, <laughs> to keep warm. Paul! I mean, it's, it's such a brilliant encapsulation of... Was it summer 67? And could you be because specific? it came at late, late 67-ish. But, I mean, it's, it's definitely a product of that. Because you can... Be, probably, the month probably is quite key, because when Revolver came out, or Tomorrow Never Knows came out, it was so new. And then probably within nine months, it was completely ousted. But was it ousted by Blues Rock? Is that fair to say? By sort of summer 68? Was Psychedelia still happening in London? No, anywhere? it was definitely Blues Rock by then. Mm-hmm. Fleetwood Mac were kind of the biggest... Group in Britain and Jethro Tull at the beginning of '68, I think. So it was incredibly for a, mm. for a genre that has lasted for 45 years. It was incredibly short-lived in its original incarnation. Was it a nine-month? I think uh, it, was, affair? it was. Flower power was what that's down to. I think where that that seems to become an embarrassing term very quickly by by Christmas '67. It was you, can, right. you can read interviews in the music press where people are just denouncing it and saying oh, I was never anything to do with it. But they're not using the word psychedelic; they're calling it flower power. Right. And I think okay. I think that's I think that's what happened in Britain, anyway. Well, the other thing we were t- t- discussing before we came on today was Alexis was, you know, it's tempting to think of this stuff being number nine in the charts consistently throughout '67. Well, there are probably only three examples of any of this happening in a commercial sense. Was well, I mean, there's this kind of rip-off. I mean, this is like "Let's Go to San Francisco" by the Flower Pot Man, but which is a great, which is a great, a great record. But I mean, in terms of actual kind of serious psychedelic records, there's. I suppose Hendrix's stuff gets in the charts. See Emily Play gets in the charts. Mm. The Doors did the ch- Doors chart in this country? No. If you look at the charts in summer of 1967, it does not look like this. And obviously the Beatles are huge. And, and the Stones, yeah. I guess, We Love You and things like yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Um, Scott McKenzie. Scott McKenzie. Well, I suppose Scott McKenzie is one of those. It's kind of, if you take the vocal off, it's pre psychedelic. Pretty good, yeah. It's, it's a real sign of a weak band, isn't it? The Stones, they go psych in 67, they go disco in 78, and then they probably went <laughs> trip hop in 99, didn't they? <laughs> they? They couldn't do it. They absolutely were not um, capable of getting with the programme. Musically. Well, actually, you say that's quite good. 
album that's done it by Jesus Christ. But um, yeah, I think it, We Love You is maybe their best record. Yeah. But that's just yeah. Really, you think? I, I think so. That, yeah. that, wow, that is an incredibly contentious thing to say. It's interesting, isn't it? Because nowadays the view of the Rolling Stones we're getting wildly off the point here. But the view of the Rolling Stones is that absolutely the apotheosis of that band is kind of early. You know, when Mick Taylor's in the group and and that sort of Brian Jones era. This incredible experimentation and mm. making really nutty. You know, records like Have You Seen Your Mother, Baby, and stuff like. That. It's just completely written out of it. No one ever mentions that anymore, which is a bit no, sad. No, no. Oh, was, there is a real dividing line with them, isn't there? It's mm. like Andrew Oldman, Brian Jones are yeah. out of the group, then it's uh, they become something completely different. And they, you know, they capture the times a lot better, I guess, when that blues rock thing comes in because they're very good at doing. You yeah, know what I mean? mm, yeah. very good at doing that. Yeah. He was a psychedelic stone, then, wasn't he, Brian? Yeah, I mean, they're all pretty psychedelic in their mm. personal habits, but but, but <laughs> Brian was, um, yeah. He was pretty way out there. And he had the sitar as well, didn't he? And the dulcimer. And, and the dulcimer. All, all the kind of uh, florid instrumentation on Stones mm. Records is Brian Jones. Let us move on. This is Bob's Choice. The Monkeys, the theme from the, the 1968 film Head, uh, Pauper Song, uh, Bob's Choice. Bob, why did you bring this in? Uh, I probably would have brought something British, but I knew you were bringing Tintin Abbey in. Um, <laughs> if anyone's seen the film Head, the, 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 the sequence that song goes with is probably the single greatest psychedelic video from yeah, the 60s. Amazing. Solarized images of the monkeys committing suicide, jumping off a, well, obviously didn't die, but in the <laughs> film, uh, committing suicide by jumping off this bridge and being rescued by mermaids. It's pretty incredible it's written by Jerry Goffin and Carol King who obviously wrote Locomotion and loads of uh, fantastic classic pop songs but um, Jerry Goffin took a lot of LSD in the in the mid 60s to try and become more of a serious songwriter because he heard Bob Dylan just thought everything up to that point was worthless like it might as well run until September worthless wow. alongside like a Rolling Stone or whatever this is probably the, the single song that uh, you can really tell he took a lot of LSD um, and he's got you know, lines that living is a lie and it's, it's very it's very dark but very beautiful at the same time and very swimmy mm. which uh, for someone who's never taken acid in my life it, it sounds very psychedelic You've just written uh, say here, a history of pop music called Yeah 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 which is coming out shortly The Monkees seem to me to occupy almost a unique place within the history of pop in that they start out as a completely manufactured entity they end up making records like this, or listen to the band, or whatever, which now are seen as kind of perfectly creditable, you know, actually very good, credible entries into the annals of whatever genre they were working in mm. at the time, be it country rock or psychedelia or whatever, but weren't universally sort of welcomed with open arms at the time, would that be fair to say? No, no, they weren't at all. I mean, they were one of the first groups where they were victims of uh, what people thought was cool, I suppose. Um, they were seen as like a sort of teeny bop group because they had I'm a Believer and always huge hits and uh, when they became their own band and broke away from the TV programme and, and did write and play their own records they were still regarded as this like, sort of joke band and there was nothing they could do about it, it was, it's, it's pretty sad 
I mean, I think I think those records, like listen to the band as well, Mike Nesmith's mm. country rock song. That's pretty groundbreaking. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, he's you know Mike Nesmith and Gene Clark and um, Graham Parsons, I suppose, are the sort of three most important people in the sixties on creating the sound of the seventies in that respect. It's certainly uh, a little bit getting off the point again, but I mean, it's proper. Mm. You know, to use that phrase, cosmic American music. Listen yeah. to the band, and it's got that kind of weird section in it with the, where it all goes. Mm. You know, the tapes like that. anyway. Mm. Mm. Off the point, <laughs> Kieran, uh, you liked the Monkeys? Yeah, I really, really like this. Um, I, lo- I love the point of. Um, how it sounds um, so starkly different to those huge pop hits that they were making, which is what well, me certainly uh, would think of when I think of the monkeys. And so hearing this it really places me kind of in that summer of psychedelia or what I think of when I think of that, that period. Um, and what I like about this is it has all those elements of from the existential preoccupations of them questioning their place in the world to those kind of Beatles-esque, you know, movement into sitar and kind of you know, finding a guru and going to India and, you know, all of that business and kind of, uh, you know, Beatles, Ravi Shankar era. And so to me, it really, yeah, it feels like what I think of when I think of psychedelia and it does it really well. Paul? Yes. I I, I don't know much about the monkeys, uh, actually, but there's probably a parallel book, and you've just written a book, Bob, probably another book to be written on how copyists sometimes do uh, genres of music better than their progenitors. Yeah, yeah. There are probably legions of people out there that prefer the monkeys' version of Bob, they just regard as bastardised version of Psychedelia to the original real McCoy. It sounds like it's easy to to do. You you imagine that you just need lots of phasing and warping and reverb and all those sort of uh, studio techniques. But you know, to a psychedelic expert, do you think can can you tell the good from the bad, or, or from the credible from the for the non credible? Well, credible from non credible is um, I think that's where things really fall apart. <laughs> it's, it's you know, it's, I think it's either good or bad. And the monkeys didn't just do this on their own. They had Jack Nitsch, who was Phil Spector's sidekick, producing it, mm. and uh, Russ Titleman, one of the great Brill Building writers, on it as well. And uh, probably Neil Young. I mean, he played he played with them around that time as well. So he was just going to band with Rick James. On Motown. Right, well, there you go, the Monkeys, Poor Boy's song. Moving on, this is Kieran's Choice. Kieran's choice, Jay Diller, the late Jay Diller, uh, with nothing like this. Um, that, that's a brilliant record. I was unaware of. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I know obviously I'm aware of who Jay Diller is, um, because <laughs> you can't move people going, you know, respect to Jay Diller. These days. <laughs> Diller saved my life. Um, Diller, yeah. You know. <laughs> Tell us about uh, this particular track. Well, yeah. Well, I just want to kind of preempt this by saying that I really take psychedelia and hip hop um, as a term as meaning anything that really dislocates the structural elements of kind of hip-hop in 4-4. And even though kind of Jay Diller on Donuts does have a lot of um, tracks in 4-4, that it's, you know, you can kind of hear that, that it's a lot more interesting and that he's doing something certainly very experimental. I take that term from, you know, people like MF Doom working under the Mad Villain Monica and Flying Lotus who really refer to a period of their work which was, you know, very experimental and then they use that kind of psychedelia as that term to you know kind of describe elements of what they were doing 
to me, they fall into two camps when we're talking about psychedelia. On one hand, they're either using kind of experimental um, rhythms and kind of, you know, unconventional things, you know, like these kind of drones, which you can hear in this as well. Or they're speaking pointedly about, you know, hallucinogenic drugs and the effect that that's had on their music. And that seems like a bit more of a contemporary trend. I'm aware this is a light <laughs> British psychedelia. But yeah, in this instance, this is nothing like this. And it's from the 2006 album Rough Draft. I just think it's um, so beautiful and, and strange and it has all those wonky sounds and definitely has those kind of relentless loops and drones that I kind of connect with some of the psychedelia that we've heard today. Sounds like George Harrison backwards. Or something like that. It's got that kind mm. of bendy sort mm. of again, my bloody Valentine-ish kind mm. of quality to it. Mm. But um, I'm, I'm sure it's, it's not on my bloody Valentine. But what's, obviously, what's interesting about Dida is you know he was inspired by so many classic artists, like Beethoven and Chopin, and he was a cellist, and he's kind of worked with people like Tribe Called Quest, and of course Tella Soul. And you know when when people when artists like Questlove talk about Jay Dilla's influence on um, their work, so much of it is about you know stretching their understanding of like doing things in 4-4 or you know working um, in existing time signatures and just so much of it was about learning how to make music off the beat and that sound okay and so what I think is so important about this period of hip-hop and what we're seeing now is that a lot of these artists are people that perhaps weren't necessarily well versed on those technical terms the technical musical terms of time signatures and you know you know split beats and all those kind of things they were understanding that they had made that you know they had made this sound for themselves and they suddenly felt entitled to make something completely off-piste and something completely alternative and that and it could sound weird and that was fine and people would buy into it because they were making music that was which, which brings me to the point we were making about sort of psychedelia in the 60s absolutely entitled to go off-piste um i think exactly. that's a, a, a pretty good summation of loads of loads of psychedelic records i loved this i thought it's really really sort of haunting intriguing piece of music yeah i think it's a great choice and i, I wish now because i'd made uh, more of a lateral decision to bring something like i don't know Tullerungren, uh something from side one of a wizard of true stuff from 1973 because Mm. possibly uh, to be considered a 70s, early 70s uh, psychedelic masterpiece mm. that he made on mushrooms, I think of some description. But I, I love uh, Dilla and I wish he hadn't died because... Um, <laughs> no, I do. And I'll tell you the re- the specifically the reason why is because... Um, he Would have been amazing if you'd said, I love Dilla, but I'm really glad he's dead. No, I, I, re- I I, I love this early 70s group called 10CC and I, I, I can't, there's no one to talk about 10CC with and Dilla did this amazing thing with the worst band of the world which is, a, uh, I think, side one track two of sheet music from 1974 he, he turned it into a track called working on it from the aforementioned donuts mm-hmm. and I, I, he just absolutely transforms it and it, yeah he does he psychedelicizes it uh, and uh, he totally understands that track and and, and and the sort of the transformative potential of that piece of uh, the, all those pieces of music and mm-hmm. he, he cuts it up and chops and dices with sort of psychotic finesse and turns it into something completely different and, and, and kind of radicalizes it and does all and i wish he was around to because uh, he truly understands a group that have totally been dismissed as, as a just kind of throwaway bubblegum pop purveyors and occasionally sort of people kind of understand them. So I love Dilla for that and, I, and he does something similar to that. I don't know what the piece of music is there but he was obviously a very skilled man and his, the breadth of his knowledge is pretty tremendous. Mm. Bob? Yeah, no, I thought it was, that was absolutely terrific and, you know, I, I do hear his name mentioned as you said, like, you know, respect to Jay Dilla all the time. So, I mean, I'm curious to know if he's had that much of a lasting effect on, on hip-hop, you know, production-wise, because that sounded like, sounded like things I might have heard in the early 90s. Or there's, there's, I'm, I'm sure you'll know this amazing record, Beatbot by Ramel Z from, mm-hmm. like, 81, 82, I think, taking hip-hop and doing something really properly trippy with it, mm-hmm. without it being trip-hop. 
But yeah, is, is there is there more stuff like that around at the moment? Is that is that a proper influence? Well, what I think is great about him uh, as an artist, aside from all the things that we've just mentioned, is that he, you know, can use artists like Janet Jackson, you know, that Joni Mitchell track that he did. Oh, uh, Got Till It's Gone. Got Till It's oh, Gone. Yeah. That's it. You know, like you know, that was you know that was like a big hit, and mm. it's you know he, he like you says he kind of radicalizes it and does something interesting with it, and it doesn't sound so obviously wonky and alternative in the same way that this does but it's definitely a lead-in and when you see lots of samples that you've seen in the current stream of hip-hop a lot of that is about kind of being chopped up and using you know dillas you know stretching and you know all of that and kind of breaking up of sounds that he does here but yeah i mean it's sampled loads it's sampled in clubs you can hear it in electronica it's one of the reasons why kind of electronica and trap i in my opinion has, has been so weird and has been allowed to be so kind of stretched and pushed it's thanks to dilla and thanks to people's understanding that hip-hop can sound that way that singles club that's our psychedelic singles club uh, but continuing the theme kieran has prepared for us five of her favorite psych hip-hop tunes over to you kieran here are some hip-hop tracks that I think are definitely worthy of mention. They're some of my favourite tracks of the moment, which I think definitely need to be heard. Flatbush Zombies are a rap duo from Flatbush in New York who really speak specifically about their music being a product of taking psychedelic drugs and not so subtly referenced on mixtape called Drugs, which stood for Death and Reincarnation Under God's Supervision. This track in particular is very much in the more nihilistic almost borderline sociopathic side of things and it talks about the drug bath salt producing zombies and making you want to get crazy and eat people after you've taken it Next up is Death Grips, Come Up and Get Me. These are an experimental hip-hop band from California who are really in the business of very hard, throbbing, pounding, frenetic drum patterns and um, very unhinged, terrifying vocals. What I love about this is that it's very hard to ignore. It's really, there's no kind of slavish uh, move towards having a conventional tune or even any meter in this. And it's hard and it's incredibly experimental and definitely worth a listen. My stone world is all dog days, don't take to the ceiling, stuck okay, make me yelly. Okay, okay. Next is Captain Murphy, and this is the tonight remix of a track called Shake Weight. Captain Murphy came out last year under a cloak of mystery because he was producing all of these incredible songs and nobody knew who he was. And then it later came out that it was, in fact, Flying Lotus, which I think after you hear these back is actually quite obvious. And I don't know why people were even wondering who he was in the first place. Next up is Mad Villain, an accordion. 
Mad Villain is the band name of a project by MF Doom and Madlib, who uh, released an album called Mad Villainy, which was a really incredible moment in experimental hip-hop using those kind of psychedelic tropes of completely dislocating those structural elements of traditional 4-4 beats and there's lots of tracks worthy of mention on this album to be honest but accordion really really speaks to me personally because it has that really rich accordion used in a really interesting way it has that really thick drone lots of dislocation it's it really gives you the experience of feeling completely disorientated but also makes you feel very at ease and it's very beautiful oh yeah it's like they know what's about to happen just keep your eye out like i i capping is he still a fly guy clapping if nobody ain't hear it and can they testify from in the spirit and living the true gods giving y'all nothing but the lick like two broads got more lyrics in the church got all lords and he hold the mic in your attention like obviously other people worthy of mention are people like zebra cats whose track i'm a reed was one of the biggest um, songs of last year lots of output by shabazz palaces um my track in singles club this week by jay diller and donuts is probably a good way to start so that's it for this week big thank you to bob stanley Cheers. And uh, it's Paul Lester. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming in. Uh, check out guardian.co.uk forward slash music weekly for more information on the show. Me and Kieran, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag and drop tools, and 24 7 support. Squarespace also offers seamless e commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today, no credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you will get 20% off in September by going to squarespace.com and using the offer code GUARDIAN.